Welcome to the Shilakama Extractive Podcast. Today we start a new subject matter and my guest is Jacob Tamara. Jacob Tamara is a citizen of Botswana and for three decades, he worked for the ministry responsible for mining in the regulatory policy governance and value addition areas. As a matter of fact, his last assignment was to champion value addition of Botswana's diamond production. Soon thereafter, he joined the African Development Bank as a policy advisor. Jacob also served on several boards representing the state as a director. Jacob, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's nice to have you. Thank you for having me, Sheila. That's lovely. So let me just start with uh, the basic question. What do we mean by value addition in minerals? Value addition really in the mineral sector refers to the, the continual enhancement of the mineral being mined by taking it through various stages in order to bring it to the final product that will be manufactured and put before consumers. So this continuous process, I imagine, assumes that there are certain capabilities available to take it through those stages, including infrastructure, skilled manpower, et cetera, et cetera. But from my reading of a World Bank and African Development Bank trade competitiveness report, it turns out that in this particular areas, Africa fares very poorly. How do African policymakers then reconcile the drive for value addition with the lack of capacity to value add? Well, yes, you, you, you are right. I mean, value addition is or occurs in, in stages. The first stage would be the mining of the product of the mineral, then you have the processing, refining and smelting. The final bit of the value addition, which is an area that is of quite interest to to many uh, as, and as you've said in the, quoted in the study by World Bank, it's really where we bring the mineral to a manufacturing stage as a finished product that consumers can then buy. Um, yes, there is a gap in terms of finishing and manufacturing that the, the, the minerals, most minerals into finished products. Why is that? There's a number of reasons. One, as pointed out, it's the infrastructure itself that a lot of manufacturing sometimes is much more skills intensive than the initial bit of mining and um, processing or covering the, the minerals. The other is R&D, the technology, research and development into really continuously um, refining the process of value addition. This you find sometimes in many additions many conditions do not exist within the, the countries where these minerals uh, exist. So that ecosystem needs to be addressed in order for many African countries to realize the value, the true value of the minerals that they mine. So given that in some cases that capacity isn't there. Are we perhaps not getting ahead of ourselves? Wouldn't it be better then to start by building that capacity? What is the right sequence in order for us to succeed? 
I'm not sure the, the, there is a, a, a sequence. I think it has to move in parallel. You need to, because otherwise you never, one will never reach a stage where one would now say, now I am ready. It, some of these are learning on the job, making the mistakes, refining as we go. So yes, we need to build the capacity, but that capacity can be built as we go. How can we do that? A number of ways. One, it's seconding you know, people to areas where the final manufacturing actually has been done. While in the process, one is building the logistics or the ecosystem, investing in the logistics and the ecosystem that is required so that when those, when we talk really about skills, so that when we have achieved those skills, those skills, when they come back, they can hit the ground running. In the, in the meantime, you could have, one could have brought in expatriates to do, to fill in the gaps, the skills gap that exists. So if you look at Africa then, in terms of building that capacity, what should be the three, if you imagine things that generically should be the initial focus of that capacity building? The first thing is really about policy and enabling an environment, designing a policy that would enable for that ecosystem to develop. The, the second one we need is to train, and this way Africa has got an advantage because it's got a lot of the young, young population, young people. It's to develop and train them and train them in the or science or what you call STEMs science, technology, engineering, and mathematics field that we need to do to, to train them in, in that. Then the, the, not the last but not least, is now the infrastructure. Now, when you talk about the infrastructure, it's infrastructure in a very broad sense. Infrastructure in the sense of power, in the sense of logistics, in the sense of ITC, you know, the list goes on. So infrastructure is a, in, in a broad sense, needs to be put in place. Right. So if you think about uh, the necessity for, you say, policies to create the right environment, presumably this is the right environment for foreign direct investment or even uh, investment from within the country to flow into the industry. So what do you think then is the role of the private sector in that space? One, one of the, the challenges that many, many countries in Africa is that, as you mentioned, it's the investment from within. A lot of these mining activities are driven by, by foreign direct investment. Perhaps what needs to be built or you know, where we need to focus also is how how can actually investment from within be promoted? I think this is again where policy, policy, uh, policy, and by the policy environment comes in. Uh, we know in many in many areas, in many parts of the world, when one comes in to invest, you have one has to partner with 
the citizens or the locals. That's another way of where one is in a way bringing in the element of domestic investment. So the FDI would come in with the expertise, the, the foreign investment, the, the local investment, I mean to say, that then would need policy support from governments. How can governments make policies that would then support and make available some form of finance to ensure that the local investment does also materialize because it's, there's quite a bit that can be done, I think, in that field. So uh, in some countries, the governments argue that one of the reasons why they are not succeeding with the value addition is that foreign investors are not supportive, that they lack empathy for the national development aspirations. And so I wanted you to comment on that as somebody who has also uh, conducted business with the private. How important is it that the foreign investors be empathetic rather than simply be driven by the interest in going where there's less risk but greater returns? First of all, I think investment really anywhere, investment is about making a return on one's investment, whether it's foreign or it's a domestic. Um, the element of empathy, I think, you know, it's a little lower on that. However, however, what companies are usually willing to do, they are willing, usually willing to listen to government, governments. Why? Because they need to end, they need to end the license to operate in the countries where they are and in the communities where they develop. And I think that is where governments do have a leverage because they are the ones who actually can issue that license to operate in their countries and in their, in their, in their communities. And perhaps that is where opportunities exist for governments to, from, from the onset, spell out their aspirations and put it in front of the investors and say, look, in order for us, for you to operate in our environment, these are the issues that we would want you as a government, as a, sorry, as a, an investor to look at. One would be, or among those would be the sustainability issue sustainable development and within sustainable development that's where one can then address these issues of value addition you have the environment within the environment what's going to happen when these companies leave would that place still be a place where people can still um, continue with the activities that they had before the mining activity started value addition itself as i said it's an area that I believe is defined from the onset, then mining companies can come in and know that this is what it required of them in order to operate in that environment. And that it's a leverage that governments do have. Governments perhaps need to look a little bit more 
long-term than short-term. It's a bit of a dichotomy that uh, in democratic areas where we have elections every five years and what, you know, not, yes, one has to look long-term, but long-term is usually then the five-year term that one has. When you look at mining, these operations, they are all, as you might, we would be aware, they, they're much more long-term. They are looking, usually looking beyond, you know, 20 years for their investment. So they, they need that kind of assurance. And that way, that's where, you know, the, the, the balance has to be made. The long-term in terms for the government, sometimes the long-term for some government, the long-term is five years. The long-term for mining companies is 20 years plus. So I'm mindful that when you were championing the value addition of Botswana diamonds here, that the number of cutting and polishing factories increased from 12 to 20. And I just wonder what you can tell us about uh, what it took to achieve that. What were some of the policies and strategies that the government that you worked for deployed in order to reach that milestone? It was all about trying to create that environment and enable environment and environment that will enable cutting and polishing to take place on a competitive basis in, in the country. There were a number of issues to, to deal with that policy, policy matters, uh, among, among which it were issues of uh, immigration in terms of allowing in expertise that would come in and build the local locals capabilities, skills development, skills transfer, but making it reasonably you know, workable, eh? I'm not going to say easy, but workable for foreigners with skills to come in and train the locals. I think the, the country has been successful in doing that. Eh? The, the other element were, had to do with access to the raw material, to the rough diamonds. Again, trying to make within the agreements that existed, that within that some form of access to rough diamonds by countries, by companies operating in the country uh, could be done. That also was uh, to an extent achieved. The final one was, or not the final one, the other one was really trying to invest in the infrastructure which is still even ongoing, the infrastructure being the power generation, investing in power, investing in ITC, you know, logistics. That also did assist and is still ongoing. Those are, I think, I think were deliberate policy undertakings that in a way did help and assist in the development of that value addition industry in the country. So when you think about it and you reflect on it and are now wiser, what is it that could have been done differently, which if done might have uh, increased the level of success in the volume of and value of diamonds being processed in the country? The challenge of funding has never been uh, resolved. 
So you still want still decide dependent largely on FDI with very little investment to not very little to no investment from within the country. I think that in itself creates a a, a problem in that one, even the investors, some investors when they come in, they're looking at how much investment is coming from the country. The investment from the country, any investment from the country does build to the confidence level that the investors, FDI, foreign direct investors, who may know very little about their country, if and when they see locals investing, I think that will bring built-in confidence and might accelerate even their bringing in more capital if need be. So would you argue then that in hindsight, some of what the government should have done was, if you wish, subsidize local investment to boost local investment and increase the confidence of foreigners who will be motivated by seeing citizens putting their own money in the industry? I'm hesitant to say subsidized. Um, I think you could have put in place systems and processes that could have made funding access, more accessible for those that would want to invest in the, in the industry. But the element of or the issue about subsidies, I'm afraid I don't have a lot of uh, good stories to tell about subsidies that I've seen before. Okay, so, but certainly some kind of dispensation where citizens would, would be able to access at risk the finance, but the risk would fall on the laps of the investor, not the state. Absolutely, yeah. De-risk, some kind of a de-risk, but non, non, nonetheless, investors still shouldering the, 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 the responsibility. If you reflect on what went well, and you were asked to share some lessons from Botswana with others who may be aspiring to follow the same course. What are the two most important things that you would caution other policymakers in the region against? I think for it's uh, what is more important rather than legislating. It's it's poly, I think policy is more important than uh, legislation because. Legislation at times a little bit more rigid. With policy, there's more a bit more flexibility. So I think one, there is flexibility required so that one could quickly react to the downside or even upside that you know might happen in the in in the field of value addition. With policy, with the legislation, I think it legislation takes a little bit of time to, to turn around, to be turned around if there's a need to do that. The other thing, I think really the issue of finance should really be looked at, at seriously in order to make sure that some kind of funding is it's, it's there and is available in, you know, that can citizens or locals can tap into that is less risky or it's affordable. Are you assuming that finance is the single most in, uh, difficult 
entry barrier for citizens. In other words, are you assuming foreigners have an easier task of accessing finance? I think when one looks at the, the, the especially the diamond industry, the foreigners is that they have been at the game a little longer. For citizens or locals, it's all about new, new entrants. Therefore, in any financial institution, the new entrants, they don't know me, so they need to know me. Whereas the most of the foreigners, you find that they've had relationships with funding institutions wherever they had their businesses. So it was not necessary that the funding was easier, but it was really about established track records and established relationships. Right. So, so some people argue that um, entrepreneurs must go out into the world, whether they are African, Latin American, Asian, or American, and compete with their peers, and that the state has no role in cushioning them. What is our argument in Botswana or on the continent for that matter for advocating that the government somehow must cushion entrepreneurs and bring down those entry barriers? I have not, I'm not aware or I've not come across the case studies where at start governments have not been cushioning the uh, uh, in, uh, entrepreneurs, or whatever, in, you know, in one form or the other, many or most every other uh, government has, at one point or another, had a system where they were looked after their entrepreneurs first. So that I think it, that argument, I think uh, you know, it's really uh, doesn't you know, I, I wouldn't agree with you know that, that argument. I think elsewhere we've heard, we have seen very, very, they come in terms of policies. Some of those policies came in as protectionism, not necessarily just cash, but sometimes you found where entrepreneurs were initially protected, they developed, and then after they've developed and they, yes, they could go out, out into, the, into the world. So almost every other country, and it's still ongoing. If one looks at the agriculture especially, you still got a lot of you know, uh, protectionism uh, in spite of the treaties, in spite of all the rhetoric about free trade, you still, when one looks especially at agriculture, there's still uh, some elements of protectionism throughout the world. So um, this is where policy is important, that within the policy, policy is designed in such a manner that it does enable entrepreneurs to flourish. So in other words, what you're saying is there's nothing peculiar to Botswana or the continent about seeking to nurture its own homebred industrialists. That this, in fact, these are the rules of engagement, not just at the beginning, but even further on and not just in natural resources, in other sectors. This is enlightened self-interest on the part of the developing countries and they are doing nothing different than uh, what is happening in the developed world. Absolutely. That's why you actually have the World Trade Organization. Why do we have the World Trade Organization? Because it's in recognition of that, that we, you know, yes, it's trying to level the, the playing field, but still, you still have, we still have that occurring. The, the playing field needs to be leveled, but the status, if, if one run, you know, is just starting, 
they cannot start, you know, with, with the champions. That's why we have levels of competitiveness, even, you know, in sports and whatever, you know. That's why you have the Premier Leagues, we have the first division, second division. So we, a lot of the countries on the continent, they're not even on the first division. They're not even on the second division. They, they just out there still, you know, starting from, and they in some ways cannot play, afford to play with the same rules that those in the premier division are playing with. Sure. So here's my last question to you, and it's probably unfair because I'm asking you to judge us. Has the Botswana government been successful in evaluating to its uh, diamond production and why? I think yes, but it yes and no. Yes, because at least it realized that, uh, you know, this is an area that it can play in and it did uh, work um, seriously to make sure that something happens. No, in that, uh, look, from day one, even, you know, when you look back from 1981, the first factory opened in Botswana in 1981. But I think the, at the time we have as a country, we did not push hard enough. It's only now that after the, the, the ship has left the port that we really now started peddling towards uh, that ship. I think if we had, you know, in hindsight, if in 1981, when we started, if we really put our foot down, we would be a lot further than what we are right now. But they say better late than never. So is that the advice you would give other countries then? Have a game plan from day one. Don't wait until later, because then, to your word, the ship leaves the port. Absolutely. That's why I mentioned when I talked about, when I spoke about the license to operate. I think when the companies do come, investor come, come investors come in, in order for them to gain, they have to earn, in order for them to earn that license to operate, they need to know what the aspirations of the government are, or governments are, and they must be willing to, to be party to the realization of those aspirations. And it's, it's for, for the government then to ensure that the execution is being done towards achieving those uh, aspirations. And how do they do that? Constant policy reforms. That's wonderful. Well, that was uh, very helpful and insightful, Jacob. Thank you very much once again for joining the Sheila Kam Extractive Podcast. I look forward to speaking with you again about this and many other topics as we go along. Thank you and goodbye for now. Thank you, Sheila. All the best. <laughs>